The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, God is perfect and his plan is perfect. God always has perfect timing in everything that he does, and his timing is not always our timing. There are many decisions that you and I make throughout the course of our lives. Some of those decisions are good decisions, and some of those are bad decisions. Some of the decisions we make have tremendous consequences, and others have very little consequences. But among all the decisions we make in life, there is one area that we can have no effect in whatsoever. And that is determining the time and the place and the manner in which we are absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. And this last Friday, it caught everyone by surprise, as it does when someone is young. But Jamie Page was absent from the body and face-to-face with the Lord. He had been married for only two weeks to Delilah. Both of them are believers, so we have confidence in the Lord's perfect plan and perfect timing. And in that, we derive our comfort. The Scripture says that we, as believers, do not grieve as those who have no hope, because we understand the dynamics of what takes place at the moment of physical death. That a person at that instant is absent from the body, face-to-face with the Lord Jesus Christ. They're in a place of no more sorrow, no more tear, no more pain, no more tears, no more pain. All the old things are passed away and all things are new. And so it's a time of sadness. It's a time of grieving because of the loss that is experienced. But beyond that, it is a time of tremendous joy and excitement because this individual has been promoted to heaven and it is a tremendous opportunity to witness to people to explain the true dynamics of physical death and the realities of life, that just because a person is separated from their physical body does not mean the end of life. In fact, it is the beginning of life with the Lord in heaven, the beginning of eternity for that individual, and so it is a time of tremendous joy. We need to put our focus on the realities of spiritual truth so that we can have stability in the midst of crises like this. I do not know when, have not received word when the uh, funeral or memorial service will take place. And once uh, we find that out, I'm sure it will go out on the prayer chain. Before we begin our study this morning, let's begin with a word of prayer. We need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. That is done through the use of 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At the moment we confess our sins, we're filled with the Holy Spirit, and we are able to continue our spiritual growth. It is a tremendous grace provision that we have. It's not based on anything we do or how we feel about anything. It's based totally on what the Lord does. You know, I had an interesting experience this week as we were trying to get moved yesterday, which did not happen. A number of different things had to all come together in their proper order and sequence for that to take place. None of them came together in the proper order and sequence. 
And as I was on the phone with Snet on Friday, wondering why my telephone wasn't connected, and it was 10 days after the time it should have been connected, uh, I was, as I was thinking about the conversation later, the, the lady who was helping me was, was very kind and very gracious and very helpful. And it was discovered that it was a problem in the telephone line that they'll eventually fix. But as I got through with that conversation among many that morning, I realized that everybody I talked to and explained the situation that I was moving and trying to get moved and that you know, other things, many things were contingent upon all of these people doing what they said they would do when they said it would, they would do it, they all expressed how sorry they were and how, uh, how they empathized. And I thought about it afterwards and I said, you know, I really didn't care how sorry they were. It really didn't matter how they felt. It was nice. And it was, it was pleasant and, and it was good to know that they had a nice attitude about it and that they sympathized and empathized and had a certain level of compassion. But it didn't turn the phone line on. It didn't get me moved in, didn't solve any of the other problems, and I thought about that and related it to the whole issue of confession. And you've all been in situations like that where people express their deep care and sympathy, but it really doesn't do what needs to be done. And what needs to be done at the point of uh, confession is simply admitting our sins to the Lord. It's not how we feel that matters. What matters is following the procedure outlined in 1 John 1, 9. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then we will look at the Word. Our Father, we do thank you again for the wonderful privilege and opportunity we have as a body of believers to gather together to worship you. We do this by realizing that your Word is the most important thing in our life, that you have revealed yourself to us over the centuries and over the generations and we have your very words recorded for us in the scriptures and nothing is more important than learning what you have to say to us about how to live and how to have a relationship with you so father we come to worship you this morning in the highest of all ways by studying your word we pray that you would help us to understand these things and apply them to our lives to affect our thinking we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One more announcement. Since we did not get moved yesterday, we will get moved next Saturday, Lord willing. So I'd appreciate any help next week. We, uh, I've got a truck rented for Saturday, and we'll begin around 8 or 9 in the morning. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Seems like we have been here for a long time, but that is because we have been studying the very, very important doctrine of justification. Justification by faith alone is one of the most talked about doctrines, one, a phrase in Scripture that is uh, used over and over again from pulpits throughout the world, and yet it is a phrase and a doctrine that is rarely properly understood. And so we have taken the time to deep to look at it in detail. I want to back up a minute because sometimes we it's very important to take a doctrine and to analyze it in detail, to take it apart, to find out how it works. What is justification? How does God justify or vindicate a sinner who possesses a sin nature 
has Adam's original sin imputed to him and is under condemnation. The word for justification, dikaiosune, is the direct opposite of the word for condemnation. So to understand the doctrine of justification, we had to back up and understand the principle of condemnation. What is the basis for man's condemnation? And we saw that the basis for human condemnation is not personal sin. That's what the problem with most legalism is they're so caught up with sin and they're so concerned about sin that they forget that sin is no longer the issue. That's a very critical statement. Sin is no longer an issue for the believer or for the unbeliever. Period. Personal sin never was the issue. The issue was Adam's original sin. Don't get arrogant and think that it's something you did. It's not. It's what Adam did. And so consequently, it's not what you did that was the result of your con- that resulted in your condemnation. It's not what you do that's the re- results in your justification. It's what Christ did that results in your justification. At X point, you were born. Physically, because you were seminally in Adam, you received a sin nature that was genetically transmitted. You also received the imputation of Adam's original sin. From the moment you were born... Until you trusted Christ as your believer, you committed a number of pre-salvation sins. Those came in the category of mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue, and overt sins. They may have included jealousy, bitterness, anger, hatred, all kinds of uh, mental, other mental attitude sins, sins of the tongue such as gossip and maligning, uh, slander, Lying, all sorts of sins of the tongue, overt sins, could be the most heinous of all sins, mass murder, genocide, uh, adultery, rape. We always focus on things like that, criminal activity, whatever it is. No matter what sins you committed before you were saved, every single one of those sins were imputed to Jesus Christ at the cross. So whatever sin you committed prior to your salvation was completely paid for, by Jesus Christ on the cross. That means you will never have to pay the penalty for that sin ever again. That sin ever. You never had to pay the penalty that was paid for completely by Jesus Christ on the cross. Then, from the moment of your salvation until you go to be with the Lord, you are going to commit another vast array of mental attitude sins. You're going to worry, be afraid, be anxious, be bitter. You're going to be jealous. You're going to be angry and hateful towards people and have hatred in your soul. You're going to commit sins of the tongue. You're going to say things out of anger. You're going to be spiteful. You're going to run people down, malign them, slander them. You're going to gossip. You're going to uh, lie. All sorts of sins of the tongue will be committed by you because the sin nature that you had before you were saved is still there after you're saved. And you still commit, can commit all the same sins you could commit before you were saved. So now you have a host of post-salvation sins. And this has been a problem for Christians to deal with throughout the centuries. Within a generation of the death of the last apostle, the early church had no idea how to deal with post-salvation sins. They lost the concept of grace. 
They forgot that every single, just as every single one of the pre-salvation sins were paid for at the cross by Jesus Christ, every one of your post-salvation sins were paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. So that that's not the issue anymore. The sin problem was solved completely by Jesus Christ on the cross. And the way to deal with sins after the cross is 1 John 1, 9. Because at the cross, when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, at that moment, you possess, before that, you possessed minus righteousness. You had relative righteousness. You may have been very moral. You may have been very religious. You may not have done very many bad or evil things. You might have been two or three or four years old when you understood the gospel and accepted Christ as your Savior. And so you look back and you say, well, I can never give one of those glowing testimonies where they get up in the pulpit and they talk about how they were uh, muddy drunk in the gutter and how they were on heroin and how they committed this sin and that sin and had this life of, of a debauchery and then they, they came to Jesus and they were saved and it goes on from there, and you've all heard testimonies like that, and yet you were saved at a tender young age of four, five, or six, and you look back and you say, gosh, I didn't commit any sins like that. Uh, I don't have those experiences. Maybe my salvation's not real. Well, that's not the issue. At the point of salvation, it's not your personal sins. They were paid for by Christ. It's your condemnation at salvation when you receive the imputation of Adam's original sin at that point, what the righteousness of God rejects, the justice of God condemns, but the grace of God provides a solution. And that solution started at the cross, and at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ is imputed to you. So that when God the Father looks at you, He sees that you have perfect righteousness. Now what the righteousness of God accepts, the justice of God blesses. And the justice of God, up here you have the perfect righteousness of God and the justice of God, and the justice of God imputes to you at, at, at that moment of faith alone in Christ alone, cre creates a human spirit and imputes to that human spirit God's very own life, eternal life. And you have eternal life and you are what the Bible calls regenerated. You become born again. That's a very good word that has been misunderstood by many in our society today. You've been regenerated, and what that means is that you now have a spiritual life. The human spirit that God, the Holy Spirit creates at the moment you have faith alone in Christ alone is given to you, and eternal life is imputed to that human spirit, so now you can have a relationship with God the Father. Now, the early church always had problems with post-salvation sins. They said, well, you have to feel guilty about it. Or maybe, maybe baptism, somehow baptism washes you clean, so let's, uh, let's not get baptized till you're pretty old. Because then you won't have too many sins after baptism to deal with. And then they, they began to realize that had problems, so maybe it's, it's penance. You have to do something. There's always the addition of human work. Somehow we have to add to what Christ did on the cross. But that's not what the Scriptures teach. And we're at one of the most important passages for that right now in Galatians 2.16. And we've looked at all the background for the things I've just covered. And we've looked at them in detail. It's like a, a, a dendrologist. That's someone who studies trees, a tree scientist, going out with his microscope and examining all of the cells in the leaves on, leaf on the tree. 
looks at every cell, evaluates the cell structure, analyzes it, but then he loses sight of what the forest looks like. And we don't want to fall into that category. So every now and then we have to, after we go into a period of detailed analysis, we have to back up and find out, well, what exactly is going on in this passage? We've taken the doctrine apart in detail, and now we have to go back and get an overview. Remember, the issue in Galatia was that a group of people called Judaizers have come in and they're telling these Gentiles that they have to do something, they have to add something to faith for salvation and for sanctification. And in this particular instance, these Judaizers are adding the Mosaic Law. But as we're going to see in this passage, the Apostle Paul uses a grammatical construction that not only focuses on the Mosaic Law, but also would include any other legal system that people try to impose upon God or upon uh, Christians for gaining God's favor or God's approbation. The first ten verses of chapter 1 contains the salutation and the expression of outrage from the Apostle Paul toward the Galatians that they had abandoned the gospel of faith alone in Christ alone so quickly after he left wasn't long uh, before these Judaizers came into town and started challenging Paul's authority and Paul's doctrine, and the Galatians just went right along with them. Then we came to the first major division in the book, where Paul establishes the credentials for his authority. This is covered in 1.11 down through the end of this chapter, down to 2.21. He lays out a proposition in verses 11 and 12, which he will then substantiate. Paul received the gospel directly from God, not from men. Therefore, he has the authority to teach the gospel and to make it clear to people. And if he is contradicted by anyone, then they are to be anathematized, that is, cursed and rejected because they do not have authority from God as he has authority from God. To establish this, in verses 13 and 14, he uh, rehearsed evidence from his life prior to his conversion, how he was a a Pharisee, how he had uh, done everything he could to earn his way to heaven and to work his way to heaven. And by following the Mosaic Law, Paul had a life uh, of just brilliant external obedience. If anybody could earn their way to heaven on the basis of legal obedience, it was the Apostle Paul. Then he gave evidence from his conversion, how the Lord Jesus Christ appeared to him on the road to Damascus when he was headed there uh, carrying writs for the arrest of any, any believers, they, any Christians they found there to take them back to Jerusalem for trial and to execute them. And when the Lord appeared to him, Paul instantly recognized the error of his ways and put his faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. Then he gave evidence from his first visit to Jerusalem, which came three years after his conversion. So for three years, he was teaching, he was beginning to exercise his spiritual gifts in in a minor way, but he had no contact with Jerusalem, which means he did not derive his doctrine from men or from a group of men. That was his initial statement in 1.1. He is an apostle from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is the source of his authority. Then after he was in Jerusalem, he went back home to Tarsus in uh, Cilicia, and he was there for a Uh, uh, almost 14 years, and during that time he continued to have a ministry in that area, and that was covered in 121 to 24. And then he gives evidence from his second visit to Jerusalem, 
14 years after the first visit when he comes down and he meets with Peter and James and other leaders and they affirm the gospel that he's teaching, that it is the same gospel that they've been teaching. And that was covered in 2, 1 through 10. And then in 2, 11 through 14, leading up to the passage we're currently studying, he has to publicly confront Peter with Peter's... uh, Peter's leaving grace. Peter has has just abandoned the doctrine of grace. Now Peter always had trouble with grace. Peter, after his after the day of Pentecost, later had trouble understanding the role of Gentiles in the church, and God had to make it very clear to him through a vision that Gentiles were to be included within the church and they were to be recipients of the gospel, and there weren't supposed to be any demands of the Mosaic law placed on Gentiles. In fact, the Mosaic law was abolished. It was over and done with. Peter finally got the point. He came back. He convinced others of that. But then when he came up to Antioch to visit there, he came under pressure from uh, certain Jews who came up from Jerusalem who were legalists and Judaizers, and they wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. They wouldn't fellowship with the Gentiles. And so Peter came in with them, and he uh, wouldn't eat with the Gentiles. See, there's always people who get caught up in some kind of legalistic mentality and who think, well, if you do this activity or you do that activity or you do some other activity, that you're just not really a good enough Christian. And that's what happened to Peter. And it's a very subtle form of legalism. It's a very subtle form of saying, well, if I conform my external behavior to this pattern, then I'm going to be a little more acceptable to God. And and we're not talking about conforming to clear, specific mandates in Scripture. We're talking about those areas that the Scripture does not address, that are not present in Scripture, whatever. And there's always a, a, a veneer of Scripture verses that are appealed to in order to substantiate any form of legalism. And one has to have the spiritual discernment to get past that and not to be caught up in establishing a bunch of standards for spirituality that are not included in Scripture. And Peter got caught up with this crowd And Peter, by his defection from grace, because he is no longer teaching grace, he is no longer an advocate of grace, but now he is an advocate of the law, it threatens to divide the congregation in Antioch. And so Peter has to make it a public issue because everybody knows what's going on, and he has to confront Peter, and he does so face-to-face, challenging him and reminding him of his very own background. And that's where we find ourselves In Galatians 2.15, this is all one sentence from 2.15 to 16, so I want to rehearse 15 briefly to set the context. Paul is continuing his argument, and he says to Peter, We, that is, you and me, Peter, are Jews by nature. We are genetically related to Abraham. That's what he means. And Moses, and we have, by virtue of our religion, we have a relationship to the Mosaic Law traditionally. And then he goes on, he says, and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Now, what he means by this, you have to understand the Jewish idiom of the day. He is not making a distinction between Jews as somehow inherently holier than Gentiles. He is using the language of the Judaizers and the traditional language of the Jews against them. He is going to turn their argument on its head by doing this. He says, we're not sinners from among the Gentiles. See, Gentiles did not have the Mosaic Law. 
So because the Gentiles did not have the Mosaic Law, that's minus the Mosaic Law, that's what I'm putting on the overhead, because they were minus the Mosaic Law, they had no law. Therefore, they were sinners. They were they lacked any overt law. That's what that means. They were not law abide. Were not law breakers from among the Gentiles. That's what the idiom means. We the Gentiles don't have a law, so they're sinners. They're law breakers, and we're not law breakers from among the Gentiles. That's not our background. And then he draws a contrast to drive home a point. He uses begins with the Greek preposition de which means he's going to draw a strong contrast. In contrast to that, we understand something. And, we're going to, and I want to exegete this passage in detail, make sure we understand it, because the English is a little fuzzy. We want to make sure by drawing out the nuances of the Greek text exactly what Paul is saying here. This last week I spent most of the day just trying to deal with three of the verbs or verbal forms in this verse and there's just some, the implications are incredible. It's always important to study in the original languages. Some people today think that it's, it's a sign of arrogance when a pastor gets in the pulpit and always refers to what he knows in Greek or Hebrew, and they're taught in seminary you never do that. But it's important, just as in any language, it's better to read somebody in the original language that they, they wrote in, that they initially wrote in, than to rely on a translation. It's always better to know the exact. And God inspired the very words of Greek and Hebrew. God did not inspire the English, English text or a Latin text or a German text or a French text. He inspired the Greek text. So if we want to know precisely and exactly what God wants us to know, then we have to go back to that original language and make sure we correctly understand not only the words but also the arrangement of the words which is called syntax and grammar. So we have to do a little syntactical analysis here to understand the thrust here. He begins with a perfect active participle. Perfect active participle of the verb oida. So here's the word for knowledge, O-I-D-A. I think last week I said gnosko, but it's oida. It's perfect active participle. This is the tense. The voice and the mood. It's not really a mood because it's a participle. Now, a participle can either be an ad- adverbial participle or an adjectival participle. And here it's adverbial. And that means that it is going to add something to the verb. As an adverbial participle, it is going to explain the main verb in a little fuller way. So we have to understand what the main verb is of this sentence. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, the phrase that follows the that is a subordinate clause. It's not the main clause. So we have to skip down to to what is the main clause. It comes after the even. Nevertheless, knowing something, even we have believed. That's your main verb right there. And it is the aorist 
active indicative of pistuo. P-I-S-T-E-U-O, which is the main verb for faith, to, to have faith or to believe, to trust. P-I-S-T-E-U-O. It means to trust, to believe. Now, the participle is going to tell us something about the action of the main verb, number one. And this is an aorist, active, indicative of pistuo. Now, why do I make an issue out of this? Well, in Greek grammar, the tense of the participle is dependent To understand the tense of the participle, it is dependent upon the tense of the main verb. A participle really has no independent tense because it's a dependent verbal. It's not an independent verb. This is your main verb right here, pistuo. The the perfect participle of oida depends upon this. And a perfect participle shows action that precedes the action of the main verb. That's what's important to know. A perfect participle, the action of the participle, precedes the action of the main verb, which is aorist. Now, that is going to give us a very important point to understand here. Begins, and because it is an an adverb, it lacks the article, that means it's going to be an adverbial participle. And adverbial perfect participles are almost always causal. It expresses cause. So Paul is saying to Peter, Now Peter, because we know something, because we know, and it's a perfect, so it's because we have known. The perfect tense emphasizes the present reality of a past, of a completed past action. So here's the present time here. Paul looks all the way back here, In the perfect tense, we have known from X amount, X time in the past up to Y time in the present, we have known something. And the action here of knowing is going to precede, aorist is also a past tense, precedes the action of believing. You have to know something before you can believe it. That's the first application from this. That faith is not based on a feeling. Faith is not based on an intuition. Faith is based on knowledge of something. Because we have known something, we believe it. We believed it. It's past tense. We believed it. And he is saying to, by using an aorist tense, it summarizes all of the action in one element and places it in the past. So one of the issues that this relates to that I learned years ago, it was sort of one of those blinding flashes of the obvious I got in seminary. I was taking an exegetical course in, I think it was my third year of Greek in Romans. We had to write about five long papers in Romans dealing with various subjects, and one was on the topic of justification. We also had to write one on the topic of sanctification. That paper on justification, one of the things that I learned as we went through this is that the bit, one of the major issues in justification 
is that in most, in many denominations, especially one very large denomination, the problem is that justification is not seen as something that happens at a point in time, but justification is understood to be progressive. Now, this raises an important question. Is justification progressive? That, mean, that means, do you gradually become more and more justified through various works? Or does justification just take place fully and completely at one point in time? Now, sanctification, which is the spiritual life, the process of spiritual growth, is progressive. As you learn doctrine and, it, and you believe it and the Holy Spirit stores it in your soul and you apply it, then, and you're nourished by that doctrine just as in the physical realm you take in food, you're nourished by it, your muscles grow, uh, blood cells uh, carry the nutrients to all the cells in your body, all kinds of things happen as you metabolize that food and you grow. The same thing happens in the spiritual realm. You take in the nourishment from the Word of God, God the Holy Spirit transfers it into your soul and stores it there as you apply it. Then you begin to grow and mature as a believer. But that's sanctification. And there is a difference between sanctification and justification. They are two completely different issues. When you begin to merge them together, you run into a couple of problems. And these are very, very... Uh, very much with us today. The first is what others, myself and others, call front-loading the gospel. Front-loading the gospel is faith plus, coming right out of the beginning and saying, if you want to be saved, you need to believe in Jesus Christ and you need to be baptized. Or you need to believe in Jesus Christ and you need to quit doing those sins in your life. You need to quit uh, womanizing. Or you need to quit lying. Or you need to quit stealing. You need to, and usually it's always a focus on mental, I mean on overt sins and not mental attitude sins. But it's faith plus something. Faith plus going to church. Faith plus giving. Faith plus giving up. Faith plus repentance. Whatever it might be. And repentance is understood to be feeling sorry for your sins. But it's always faith plus something. And that's pretty easy for most of us to spot. And most of you know that that's wrong, and that's heresy, and that's anathematized in Galatians 1.6. But what is difficult for us to appreciate is backloading the gospel. When you backload the gospel, you start off saying that faith, that salvation is based on faith in Christ alone. But what happens is when you ask the question, well, how do you know if you have saving faith? They say, well, you have to have works. And you'll hear them say, the faith, while the faith that saves is faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. And what they're doing very subtly is loading works into faith. And it's very typical when they teach on James 2. Say, so while the faith that saves is, is alone, while saving faith is alone, the faith that saves is never alone. It always includes work. So it's a backloading. It's very subtle. How do you know if you're saved? It's by, what the, by the fruit that you see in your life. By, then they'll quote the verse, by, your fruits, by their fruits you will know them. And so you look at somebody's life, and if certain things aren't present there, then they weren't really saved. They didn't have saving faith. And they make a distinction between faith that saves... And everyday faith. 
You and I exercise faith every single day. We exercise faith in our spouses. We exercise faith in our children, faith in people we work with. We trust people. We do all kinds of things. We get up in the morning, we believe that our car is going to start, and we're ten minutes behind schedule, and everything's going to work out, and somehow we're going to get to work on time or get to our appointments on time. We exercise faith every day, and it's not faith itself that saves. It is always the object of faith, because faith itself is non-meritorious, and in saving faith, what the Bible means by saving faith is the object is Jesus Christ and His death on the cross. Faith alone in Christ alone. Not faith in Christ plus something else. Not faith plus, but it's faith alone in Christ alone. So they make a distinction between everyday kind of faith and saving faith because you're so totally depraved and sin has made you totally unable. And this is one of their big doctrines is the total inability of the unbeliever. And that's a phrase you will hear among the lordship crowd. Total inability. You can't do anything. God's got to give you the faith. So it's a saving faith. It's a gift of God. And the only way you know that you have it is by the fruit in your life. So then faith then very subtly now becomes, or justification very subtly becomes progressive. How do you know it? By the works that are in your life. So it's evidenced by sanctification. So it's a very subtle thing, and one of the uh, larger proponents of lordship salvation is a man out in Southern California who has a very uh, large radio ministry by the name of John MacArthur, and he wrote a book about ten years ago. And I remember when Tommy Ice and I went to hear him speak at a, at a bookseller's convention at a bookstore in Irving, Texas, and he was uh, explaining all of these concepts, and I got the book and went home and read it. And he takes the word... Uh, pistis, P-I-S-T-I-S, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by faith, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And he apparently mistakenly identifies that with uh, the cognate pistos, which is the adjective, P-I-S-T-O-S. This makes all the difference. This is an adjective and therefore can mean faithful. This is a noun and just means faith. But if you confuse the two, as MacArthur does, then the verse is going to come out being translated, which he does in a footnote, which if you don't have good glasses, you won't be able to read. For by grace you have been saved through faithfulness. You see, it's no longer a point in time. It's progressive. And that's why you have to understand that justification takes place in a point in time when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and it is not something that is linear. It is not progressive. So Paul addresses Peter, and he says, because we have known something, we, because we have known it, we believed it in the past. Peter, you have done this in the past. We knew it. We knew a principle. What is that principle? Nevertheless, because we knew something, and here we have the Greek word, hati, H-O-T-I, which is, indicates direct discourse or indirect discourse, and I think that the best way to translate it here, we knew something, we knew that, colon, and then you give the principle. They knew a principle, and that principle is that a man is not justified by works of the law. A man is not justified. What's our main verb here? Our main verb is the present passive indicative 
Dikaiao. D-I-K-A-I-O-O. Dikaiao is related to the verb for, for uh, justice and righteousness. That's why we spend so much time talking about the integrity of God, the righteousness of God the justice of God, how they work together, because both the English words justice and righteousness are included within the Greek term dikaiosune and the, ver- the noun and the verb dikaiao. Dikaiao means to put something in right relationship legally. It is a forensic term. It has to do with the courtroom. This is so hard to get across to people today because we live in a country where people have forgotten the significance of law. That legality and morality are two different issues. Morality is, may provide, and ethics may provide a basis for law and legislation, but you cannot legislate morality. Now, what does that mean? That means you cannot make people be moral. Legality and morality are two different issues. For example, with the scandal in the White House right now, the issue is not his morality. As reprehensible as that may be, there have been immoral presidents throughout the decades. That's not the issue. The issue is legality. None of the other presidents were hauled before a grand jury and asked questions about their immorality. They did not commit perjury. See, that makes it a legal issue. And there is a difference between legality and morality. And in the Christian life, there's a difference between experience and what the Word of God says, which is legality. So that at the point of salvation, there is something that happens to you forensically. That is a courtroom term. At the point of salvation, you are imputed the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and God the Father declares you to be righteous. But you are not righteous in your experience. You don't feel any different. You will feel the same. You may have a headache. You may have the flu. You may be strung out on drugs. You may have a hangover. Whatever it may be, you may feel terrible. You'll still feel terrible. Just because you're saved, it won't necessarily go away. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes there are people who, when they are saved, they have a very euphoric time and they just feel wonderful and life is brilliant and they think that lights have gone off and everything's wonderful and and that's fine. But that's not part of, that's not necessarily from God. That's not part of what the Bible says happens at the point of salvation. That is just happens to be your emotional response to the fact that you are now saved from the eternal penalty of sin. But justification itself is a forensic act, and it follows certain legal principles related to the courtroom of God, His justice and His righteousness. His righteousness provides the absolute standard, and His justice is the outworking or the practice of that standard, the application of it to His creatures. And there is a principle. A man is not justified by something. And here we have a very important phrase. We have the phrase, the works of the law. Ergon, which is the ergon, namu. This is the genitive form plus the preposition ek, out from the source. That's the meaning of the preposition, from the source of the works 
of law. Now, there's something missing in that phrase that's added to your English text. And it's not in italics. What is it? It's the word the. That's our definite article. In English, we have an indefinite article, a or an. And we have a definite article, the, which specifies. If you say the law, then it specifies one particular law code over against any other law codes. And in this context, if there were, were a definite article here, then we would rightfully conclude that he is talking about the Mosaic Law. That's the context, and he is definitely talking about the Mosaic Law. But because there is no definite article in the Greek, it's what is called anarthrus, it lacks an article, because there is no definite article right here, it is emphasizing the quality of the noun namas, which means any law, which includes any law, no matter what it is, anybody who comes up with a list of stipulations which would form the basis for a relationship with God, that if you follow these rules and procedures, then you can have a relationship with God and that you can gain His approbation and God will be impressed with your life enough to let you into heaven. That is a law code. That's a law. The Mosaic Law is simply... One kind of law code. And the, the, legis, the, the legalistic system the Pharisees developed, which just took up volumes of, of works in order to see how every little mandate in the Old Testament might apply to any given situation, no matter how minor it might be. Paul includes all of that under the phrase works of law. And this is the principle. Nevertheless, Peter, because we have known from, from probably childhood, this was drilled into them. We know from what we've learned in John chapter 1, as when, when James and Andrew were with John the Baptist, how they understood messianic promises and they were looking for the Messiah. And when Jesus came along, they followed him. They had a certain understanding of doctrine. And what was the first thing that, that James did? He ran to find his brother Peter and he brought Peter to the Lord on that that. that at the very beginning of his ministry. So Peter has a background. He has an understanding of some basic rudimentary doctrine from the Old Testament, and he understood one fundamental principle, that a person, no one, no man, is justified by works of law. How did he know that? Well, Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. They understood that principle. It wasn't based upon obedience to the Mosaic Law because Abraham lived about 600 years before there was a Mosaic Law. And it wasn't on the basis of any legal, other legalistic system. Genesis 15.6 simply says he believed God and God imputed it to him as righteousness who had some rudimentary understanding of doctrine from the Old Testament, Peter, from a young age, had understood that works minus works. Works were not the issue. Works did not impress God. A man is not declared righteous or vindicated by works of law. Contrast, but through faith in Christ Jesus. We understood that this is a strong contrast. Very strong contrast. There's, Paul is setting up, there's only one 
one of two options. You're either trying to get vindicated before God by works of law, or you're going to rely on Jesus Christ. One or the other. You can't blend them together. You can't do both. You can't say faith plus works. It's either faith or works. One or the other. And faith plus works is nothing. Nevertheless, Peter, because we have known that a man is not justified or vindicated by works of law, but through faith. And here again we have a very important construction in the Greek, dia plus the genitive. D-I-A is the Greek preposition. And when it uses the genitive, it's a, it expresses means or instrumentality. It is through faith. Through faith. The cause of our salvation is the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Dia plus the accusative case would be causal. But he doesn't use that. See how every little word is important down to the very letter. In fact, if we were to look at this in the Greek, it's dia pisteos. Just a side note here. P-I-S-T-E-O-S is the genitive. And if it were P-I-S-T-I-N, notice just this simple ending, this would make it accusative. This is genitive. If these three letters were changed to these two letters, it would have a radically different meaning. That is why it is important to affirm that the Word of God is inspired down to the very letters. Because the very letters affect grammar. And grammar affects and changes meaning. And if this were expressed dia piston instead of dia pisteos, you would have that faith would be the cause of your salvation. And that's what the Lordship crowd is really teaching, is that saving faith is the cause of your salvation because faith is meritorious. It's a different kind of faith for them. It's a saving faith that is given to you by God. But that's not what the text says. Neither here, nor Ephesians 2, 8, 9, nor any other passage can you find a causal construction. You are not saved because of faith. You are saved because of grace. Faith is merely the means by which you appropriate it. Faith looks at the cross and all of the merit is in the cross. And faith itself is non-meritorious. The basis for justification then is the believers, the declaration of the believer as righteous because he now possesses the perfect righteousness of God. It's not our human righteousness we're born with because no matter how good we are, no matter how moral we are, no matter how religious we are, and remember that religion is man doing the work and then God blesses it. Christianity is totally different. Christianity says that God does the work, all the work, and man simply accepts it. It's one or the other, not both, and that's what Paul is saying in this passage. It's not by works of law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Let's rehearse it one more time. I don't want to lose the context. Nevertheless, Peter, because we know, we have known something. We have known a principle. 
A man is not justified by works of law, but through faith alone in Christ, Jesus Christ alone. Even we, you and me, Peter, have believed in Christ. Even we have believed. Now, this is our aorist tense, and it says that at this point in time, Peter, when I'm telling you this, we've already done it. Way back here, we have believed. There was a moment in time, several years ago, when you put faith alone in Jesus Christ, and I did as well on the road to Damascus. We, because we have, we have known a principle, we believed. As a result of our faith, uh, the perfect righteousness of Christ was imputed to us, and at that moment, God the Father declared us to be righteous. It's not on the basis of who we are when we stand before the bar of God's justice. It's not on the basis of our works, our goodness, our giving, our activity, our work in Sunday school, baptism, or anything else. It is on the basis solely of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus for a purpose. And then we have a purpose result clause expressed by the particle Hina, H-I-N-A. Now, this is important. Often, Hina indicates a purpose. Other times, it indicates result. But in many passages, you can't separate the two, and both are in mind. We believed for a purpose, and it produced a result. That result is expressed in the phrase that we may be justified by faith. Now, this is a very interesting verb here. And its construction. It is the aorist, active, subjunctive of the verb pistuo. Excuse me. I think I... That we might be justified of the verb dikaiao. Not pistuo, dikaiao. The aorist, active, subjunctive. Now, this was what really threw me for a minute when I was studying this. See, subjunctive is the mood of potentiality. And when you express purpose in the Greek, you always have a hina plus a subjunctive. Subjunctive is the mood of potentiality, and it often emphasizes volition. Your decision whether to be justified or not. It's your decision to accept or reject Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And what we have here is not a present or a future subjunctive, because usually a decision is put in the future. It's in the future that you have the potentiality, not in the past. And what Peter is saying, I mean, what Paul is saying to Peter is we believed in the past that we might be justified. And by using this, he's saying, Peter, you had a potential, and you took it. And you're saved. The potential's been secured in the past. Why are you trying to now gain God's approval through legal obedience? You resolve the potential in the past. That's the aorist tense. The potential is no longer a potential because you believed in the past with the result that you are now justified. So why are you trying to gain God's approval through all this legalistic nonsense? That's the thrust of all of these All this grammar, grammar is so important in understanding the Word of God. Knowing that a man, because we have known that a man is not justified by works of law, but through faith alone in Christ alone, even we have believed in the past in Christ Jesus. He is the object of faith. 
that for the purpose and result that we might be justified, and literally because it's heiress, that we, that we might have been justified. That's bad English, but that gets the point across because it's already secured. That we might have been justified by faith in Christ, and then he repeats it again, and not by works of law. We're justified by faith in Christ. This is an objective genitive that puts Christ, sets Christ up as the object of faith. It is faith in Christ that saves, not faith in faith, not faith in activities, not faith in works, not faith in the good that I'm just so nice and wonderful and have such a brilliant personality that somehow God's going to take pity on me because, after all, I made a lot of mistakes, but I'm just human and God's going to understand that, right? It's not an issue of legal disobedience and violation of the righteous standard of God. The issue is that I'm a human being and I have failings, so God's just going to understand and let me into heaven, right? No. Law must always take precedence. Once a nation goes through a cycle as we have, where they throw away personal absolutes and no longer recognize absolutes in the realm of personal behavior, the next stage is to throw away the absolutes of law. And once a nation reaches a point where law is no longer viewed as absolute, that nation is on the verge of total self-destruction and self-annihilation. And that's exactly what we are seeing in this whole horrendous scenario today is you hear more and more people saying, well, the president is just human. We have to be understanding. And in this guise of self-absorbed, self-righteous, psychobabble, under the false pretense of compassion and empathy, we hear people again and again trying to avoid the consequences of illegal activity in order to justify the behavior of someone they want in office for other reasons. And the issue has nothing to do with his politics. The issue has nothing to do with his morality. The issue is not what took place in the Oval Office. The issue is what took place in the map room when he stood before the cameras and addressed the grand jury. That's the issue. The issue is perjury, not sex. And people have to understand that. But when people no longer focus on law and the absolute of law, then that people, whoever they are, whether they're the ancient Romans, whether they're French, the, the French under Louis XVI, or whether they are modern Americans, they are on the verge of seeing their civilization totally fragment from the inside because once you remove the rule of law, there is nothing left to give stability to a people. That is why law is so important, and the whole gospel is predicated on understanding law. I've spent, we've spent weeks discussing these terms and coming to grips with this. You have to understand the righteousness of God is a legal term, and it describes the function or the standard of His character. And justice is the function or the operation or the outworking of that standard. And God's standard has to be met. What the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. But the love of God provides a solution. So that even though we fall short, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we all have minus R, no righteousness. 
Because of that, because we all fall short of the glory of God, God provided a perfect solution in His love and His grace. But you have to accept the solution. And that is faith alone in Christ alone, at which time God imputes to the believer the perfect righteousness of Christ. And when God looks upon that, He declares that believer to be justified, to be vindicated. It's not by works of law, because that's human effort. Since, and then we get the final statement, by the works of law shall no flesh be justified. And this is a very interesting phrase in the Greek. It's a strong phrase to make sure we get the point that literally in the Greek it's all flesh shall not be justified. All flesh shall not be justified. That's bad English. So we change it over to read no flesh will be justified. But all flesh, that includes every single human being. Since by the works of the law, all flesh, that includes every human being, shall not be be justified. No human being can be justified. With this statement, Paul just hits Peter and the Galatians right between the eyes with grace. He reminds It's a reminder of what he says in Romans 3.20, because by the works of the law, and there he uses the same phrase, ex ergon namu, no definite article, by the works of law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was not designed for salvation. It was never intended to provide salvation. According to Romans uh, 3.20, for the, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. It's totally different. These are antithetical systems, one or the other. You can't merge them together. As I looked at those two verses, Romans 3.20 to 3.28, I read through the intervening verses. Notice how rich this is. The, one of the problems we have today is that, that most Christians are not taught very much about doctrine. They're not really, they don't explain these words. In fact, if you read some of the modern translations that come out, you'll never find words like justification or propitiation or redemption because those are too difficult and most people can only read at a second grade level so we don't want to confuse people. So they use Uh, pusillanimous words that have very little meaning and no one can understand and it denudes the the scriptures of all their doctrinal content. And the result is you have superficial little Christians and the most they can handle is about ten minutes of some little sermonette on Sunday morning and they'll never go anywhere or grow anywhere in their spiritual life and they're just going to fall apart when any pressure comes. Romans 3.21 says, But now apart from law, apart from law, law has nothing to do with it, apart from law, the righteousness of God, that is the standard of divine integrity, has been manifested, being witnessed by law, or by the law, and, and, and in the Greek that's the only time you see a definite article, so that's referring to the Mosaic law as one witness of the righteous standard of God being witnessed by the law and the prophets, that's the Old Testament, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. What's that? That's what we've been studying in terms of the imputation of God's righteousness to the believer at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, not for all those who believe and are baptized, not for all those who believe and fulfill some 
uh, external system of works, not for all those who believe and go to church or go through various operations. And remember, grace is faith alone. You do not receive grace through cooperation. This is a word very popular among one of the largest denominations in the world. They always talk about how we must cooperate with God's grace. But cooperation means, the co here means two people are involved. God and man. And cooperation means God does something and man does something. And in spite of all their grace talk, they don't understand the concept when they try to link the word cooperate with grace and talk about cooperative grace and that uh, a person, if a person wants to be a Christian, they have to cooperate with God's grace. There's no cooperation at all. God did it all. God paid the price in full. For, uh, the, through faith in Jesus Christ, for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace. That means it excludes all works. As a gift by His grace, through the redemption, that is, the payment of a price, which is in Christ Jesus. Who paid the price? Christ did. You don't pay the price. I don't pay the price. I can never pay enough to even come close. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that means a satisfaction for His integrity, for His perfect righteousness and His justice, as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Not through faith plus works, but through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So justification is by faith alone in Christ alone. You can't front load the gospel with works and be very careful that you do not back load the gospel with works with saying that somehow assurance of salvation is based on evidence in your life. Assurance of salvation is based on the promise of God that if you believe in Christ alone, faith alone in Christ alone, you will have salvation. Next time we'll come back and look at Galatians 2.17 and the conclusion which sets the stage for going into the second major division of the epistle in chapter 3 which focuses on justification by faith as the basis for our spiritual life. That just as the salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone, the spiritual life is based on faith alone with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for this time to study our our so great salvation, to understand the dynamics of justification and everything that You have done and that You have done it all. There is nothing left for us to do and we simply accept it. This is the magnificent gift that we have been given and You have done everything from regenerating us to imputing righteousness to us and to providing everything we need to go forward in the spiritual life. All we need to do is follow your instructions. So, Father, now as we go throughout this week, face whatever tests or situations we have, that we might remember our foundation in your grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.